with that. Like, I'm, I'm guessing that the vast majority of people in this room and around the world are not saying, yeah, that's good to not have sexual relations with your wife. Uh, I'm guessing most people in the world would say, good? That sounds like awful, right? That sounds like hell on earth, basically. And so this couldn't be more different than what most people in our society probably believe about sex and marriage today. But I just want to ask you this morning in a non-crass sort of way, but in a very sincere, let's talk like mature adults kind of way, okay? Um, how do you think of sexual intimacy? Do you think of it as a taboo, as a bad thing or a gross thing? Uh, do you think of it as everything? Uh, do you think of it as something that's dirty? Or do you think of it as something that's basically to be worshiped, to be sought after just in whatever way you want? Finally, is it, is it a gift, or is it your God, basically? That's the title of the sermon, is it gift or is it your God? And really, uh, I'm just curious, what does God say about how we should view sex? And let me genuinely ask us, because I've, I need to ask myself just as much as I need to ask you, do we really care what God says about how we should view it? Do you really want to know? And do you actually want to do something with it? Or is this an area where we go, that's your opinion, but I have my own. Uh, the next few weeks, we're going to be entering into the territory of 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, we're going to be talking about sex, uh, marriage, and singleness. Here in a couple weeks, we're going to be talking about singleness, and so I hope all you single people will come to that, so it'll be great. Um, but this morning, the conversation really revolves around sexual intimacy, and most specifically, how to fight and have self-control when it comes to sexual temptation. And as a baseline, I hope that we see that if you view sex as a bad thing, or if you view it as everything to you, then you are going to really struggle with this in life. But if we see it and value it from God's perspective, then there's actually this daily satisfaction that'll be very freeing to you. And so this morning in verses one through five, I just wanna show us that this is telling us that sex is a good thing, but it can be a deeply destructive thing. Verses one through five. Verses 6 through 9, we see that sex isn't everything, but Jesus is enough. But Jesus is enough. So first, we see that sex is a good thing, but it can be a destructive thing because we are tempted to misuse it. Uh, in verses 1 through 5, we see this. What, what is Paul's response to what at least some followers of Jesus in Corinth were believing that sex is to be avoided, which is what he says in verse 1? What's his response? His response is that it's not bad but you're misusing it and abusing it. Uh, verses two through three, just look here with me. It says, but because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife for conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. See, the irony of this whole issue is that they're saying it's to be avoided, right? It's better to not have it, yet they can't control their own desires and so they're still giving into it anyways. They're just going elsewhere for it. Right? Isn't that really fascinating? Isn't that interesting? That they've somehow justified this sort of behavior. And so he doesn't come straight out and say that sex is good, but he says that people in the confines of marriage should freely and generously give this. Therefore, it definitely isn't bad. It definitely isn't bad. So what is wrong is how in one breath they're saying it's good, they're saying you should abstain from it, but in the next breath, they're breaking the very rules that they've created for themselves. So we actually see here just... Uh, a few commands, basically, in response to this. We have a few commands here, and we only have one thing that he gives as a truth about why he's commanding these things. 
So they're told, number one, that they should marry. They're also told that they should positively give sexual intimacy to their spouse. And thirdly, they're told negatively, the same thing, but just negatively, that they shouldn't deprive each other of their conjugal rights. These are three things he tells them to do. So I'm just asking you, as you're reading this, I'm asking you, why are they told to not deprive each other, and why are they told to marry? Why are they told to do this? It's, it's actually a really practical reason. Why are all these commands given? They're given as a way to combat the lack of self-control they have in their lives. You can't even control it. You need to get married. You need to get married. See, here we see that we are being clearly instructed, which, let's just be real, it's very contrary to our culture and even Corvallis mantras, that sex is actually designated for marriage between a husband and wife. Anything outside of that, therefore, falls under this category. Uh, the Greek word is porneia, where we get our word pornography, of uh, sexual immorality. It's to be completely avoided because ultimately it'll lead to pain and destruction. So for curious, just to be on the same page, this will be on the screen. This is the best definition I can come up with right here for sexual morality. Any sexual act that is experienced outside of the loving design of God, which is marriage. That's what your passage is laying out for you here. This is honestly one of the clearest places that refutes the idea that sex should be experienced outside of marriage. But we're told that sex is not something to be avoided, that God designed marriage as the place for this expression. And let's just be honest, um, there's some of you in this room, uh, you've heard this your whole life, and so what I'm saying, it just sounds right, but it doesn't really land with any weight. You're just like, yeah, I believe that. And there's some of you that are, I can't see you all very well, but some of you are probably rolling your eyes at me. That's fine, I get it, right? And you're saying what you're saying sounds really restrictive, old-fashioned, it's not progressive, okay? And I get it, I really do. Like if we could sit down and, and talk about this face-to-face, -face, you would see, I, I really do, I get it. But we can't quickly breeze past this no matter what angle you're coming from. And here's why. It's a very destructive thing if you don't get it. It doesn't land with any weight. This will be on the screen. There's a proverb, a famous one, Proverbs 14. It says, there is a way that seems right to a person, and that way leads to death. I bring this proverb up just as a way to ask you. When it comes to this issue, is, there, is this an area where you follow what seems right to you? Or do you follow what God has said is right to him? It's a simple question. See, following our own way leads to destruction, at least if you believe this proverb. So you say, I say destruction because who is it that's tempting you towards porneia in this passage? Who is tempting you towards it? It's an important question. What does it say in verse 5? He tells them to, if you're going to have a season of prayer, which he's not commanding the season of prayer, he says, if you do, hey, make sure you come back together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Who is it that's tempting you towards this other path? He tells you it's, it's Satan, who we're told is the father of lies. And, and we know this, right? You know this. Lies never lead to your flourishing, do they? They might feel like flourishing for a moment, but anything that's not a truth, you eventually realize, oh, this isn't real. This isn't meant to give me what I'm looking for. That's what a lie does. It leads you into falsehood, and therefore, it'll never give you what you're actually looking for. So this just leads you down a path that you don't actually want to go down. Um, I love fire, okay? Um, just come out and say it, all right? I love fireplaces, candles, fire pits. I'm not a pyro, I don't think, but I like fire a lot. And I've heard it said, 
like you probably have too, that sex is a lot like fire. You ever heard this, right? Like fire, if it's stewarded rightly within the confines of, let's just say, a fireplace or a flame on a candle, right, it's a, it's a glorious thing. Right? It keeps you warm, it makes your house smell good, provides a good ambiance for reading a book or something, right? It, it's great, provides great aesthetics. But if that fire is brought out of those confines, it turns into a really destructive thing, doesn't it? And we see it burn down homes, entire communities. We see this every year, like in California especially, and even in our own mountains, right? Sex is a gift designed by God given to humanity. He designed it with intention and purpose, right? It's good. But when it's abused, it's destructive. And you and I feel that. You feel it. You, you might satisfy your immediate pleasure, but you're left not feeling whole and full, but empty, aren't you? Right? you? Someone uses you or you use somebody else. What does it do? It hurts. You might say it doesn't, but it hurts. Or you, you're left feeling all this shame, maybe even eventually guilt. See, God designed things a certain way. He made this thing, okay? And just like all sin... All sin is taking what God has made that's good and distorting it. Right? God doesn't make sin. He makes good things, and then us humans, we've come along, and we've been tempted or whatever, and we said, I'm going to take this good thing, I'm going to use it this way. And God says, no, that's not how I designed to use it. That's, that's sin. That's what all sin is. So, how are these people then being instructed to combat their proneness towards abusing sexual intimacy in a way that breaks the heart of God? What does he offer them? He offers them... Sex and marriage is a way to combat this. And he says, if you're tempted towards sexual morality, you should get married. Stop, some of you, I'm being serious, some of you, it's like he's saying, stop dragging your feet. Right? You should get married. And then he says that once you're married, you should generously give and receive intimacy. So what's the reasoning behind why husbands and wives shouldn't deprive each other? Why? He actually gives you a theological reason. So it's because that as husbands and wives, you don't have authority over your own body. It says the wife has authority over her husband's body and the husband has authority over his wife's body. Okay? Now, please, hear me very clearly. Do not ever abuse this. This isn't giving license for you to say your body's mine, I'll use it however I want. That's not his point at all. It's, 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 that's not it. It's not license to abuse. It's framed in love, actually, if you read it rightly. It's framed in love. This isn't framed here as a selfish act, that basically you demand something and guilt someone and use the truth that their body is for you, right? It's quite the opposite, and if you're not careful, you'll miss this, because how is it framed? Read it clearly. It's not that their body is something to be used by you. That's not how it says it, right? It's that your body isn't simply yours, but it's to be freely given, it's not that they should give themselves to you so that you don't sin. That's not how it's worded. It says it's so that you would give your body to them so that they don't sin. Do you notice this? In verse 3, his verb is in the present imperative, which indicates the habitual duty of this. It's significant that Paul stresses the importance of giving rather than getting. That's the whole emphasis here. Right? Marriage is the giving of oneself to another person. It's not getting someone to, to get from them. That's not the point of marriage. It's not selfishness, it's love. It's not greed, it's generosity. See, sexual morality is always selfish because it's never sacrificial, it's never generous. Pornea never is. 
right? It always seeks to get and not to give. It always asks, what do I want? Not how can I love and serve you. It asks, please satisfy me, not how can I serve you. And so even contextually, man, I just gotta bring this out. Why is it framed this way? Think about this. This is pretty mind-boggling beyond just like the mechanics of this whole thing. The spouse is pictured here as an advocate for the other person. Do you see this? So that their spouse won't be tempted to distort God's design for intimacy. So in realizing this, it's telling you that you are to be an advocate for your spouse's relationship with God. That in you giving your body positively and not depriving them negatively, you're doing that as a selfless act for the sake of their own relationship with God so that they're not given over to porneia. You're, you're not simply viewing intimacy as this craving you satisfy. You're helping your spouse stay faithful to Jesus. That's what it's saying. So if it's not clear enough, temptation is the theme here. Uh, verse 2 says, but because of the temptation, the sexual morality. Verse 5, so that Satan may not tempt you. Temptation is the theme. We're tempted to misuse it. This will be on the screen. Uh, temptation is giving into a temporary satisfaction in exchange for a better one in the future. That's what this is getting at. It's saying, I want this now, and I'll exchange it for that thing that's better in the future. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the very famous uh, marshmallow test in the 1960s. You know about this? Some of you just saw this on Magic for Humans or whatever on Netflix, but it's, it's very old, okay? Um, in the 1960s, the psychologist uh, Walter Michel uh, did this test with about 600 kids, and he put them in a room, and he'd put a, a fat marshmallow in front of them, or an Oreo cookie, or this salted pretzel. And he would say, hey, I'm gonna leave this here, I'm gonna leave the room for 15 minutes, right? If you can refrain from eating this for 15 minutes, when I return, I'll give you two, and you can have them both. He's like, but if you wanna eat that, you're free to eat it, right? I just won't give you a second one, okay? Only, one, only 200 of these 600 kids, only a third of them actually succeeded. A lot of them just immediately were like, whatever, I'm eating it, you know? And some of them like ran around the room and hid, you know, covered their eyes and did all this crazy stuff, trying to like, you know, not give in to this crazy temptation of eating a marshmallow, you know? And um, so it just proves, you know, this idea that, you know, who can we, do we have this within ourselves to delay the gratification? That even if I'm promising you something better in the future, can you have the self-control in the present? See, considering what temptation is, is really helpful because most of the time when you're tempted with something, you and I are tempted to believe that God is withholding from us, that he's holding out on you. He's saying, don't have this, and he's not offering you something better. That's how most of us view temptation. But temptation is that you're tempted with something in the present and God says, hey, no, have the self-control. I've got something way better for you in the future. That's what God is offering you. He's promising you something better. Well, what happens if you eat the first marshmallow then? What happens if you do that? Well, let's be honest. I'm guessing all of us have. We've all eaten the first marshmallow. So does that mean we don't get the second one? Does that mean we don't get the better thing that God's holding out for you? And that's the crazy, costly thing about God's grace. You ate the first marshmallow, and he's still offering you the second one. That's the crazy thing. Look on the screen in Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, even sexually, every respect, right? Has been tempted as we are, yet he didn't eat the marshmallow without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. I'm just curious, how can you draw near to God even if you just give in to this stuff? Right? How, how can you draw near to God when you only feel shame? See, some of you are walking in here with a lot of it today. I'm guessing some of you walk in here with a lot of shame about something, and maybe particularly this. And I don't need to list stuff for you. But I just need you to know that God desires to lift your shame. That shame that makes you want to hide and withdraw, you're told here instead to draw near. Why? Because he's drawn near to you. God wants to lift your shame and for you to experience his glorious embrace, to not hide any longer. And how can this be? Well, it's because Jesus hasn't withheld himself from you. He's freely given himself to you, and he gives himself to you again today. He hasn't deprived you, but freely offers his substituted, broken body as fresh grace for you. So, sex is a good thing if we experience it in the confines of what God has designed it for. And most of us are prone to distort that. So, is this it? Is the solution to your life for everyone to get married? Because what if you want to get married and no one's popping the question? Right? Where is your hope? Well, there's a lot, actually. We're going to talk about this more in two weeks. But in verses 6 through 9, we see that sex, good news, isn't everything. Okay? Why? Jesus is enough. That's what I want you to see. See, we very often tend to elevate sexual experience to a position of need in our lives. I need it. And people will tell you you need it for your own health. I was already pressed into that. Figure out if that, what they're saying is actually true. See, we think we need it. When we do that, we're basically glorifying it to a place of essentialness. If you need it, you're saying it's essential. I have to have it. See, we are saying that in a very real way, sex is everything. But just glance at verses 6 through 9, and you'll quickly see that sex can't be everything. It can't. Paul uses two words here that we will get into more, again, two Sundays from now when I talk about this. Uh, but he uses two words here to describe his current situation. And he's not like 21 in college single, you know, not that kind of painful single. Like, he's an older gentleman, right? And he's single, okay? And, you know, meaning that he is, what, battling sexual temptation. Why? Because he's human, okay? And he doesn't have a wife to help him battle that. He can't even heed his own advice, but here's a single guy not having sexual intimacy with anyone, and how does he describe being in that spot? How does he describe it? He's like, oh, I'm miserable. I can't wait for Jesus to come back. You know, that's not what he's doing, is it? Paul describes being single in this conversation about trying to exercise self-control using the words good, using the words it's a gift. And if you read further on chapter 7, you see that he says in verse 40, you'll be happier if you're single. Verse 38, that it's even better than being married. 
This is how he talks about it. So we have these words here in these verses, right? Verse 7, it's a gift from God. Verse 8, it's good to remain this way. Right? These are the two words that we have. You would think you would find the words curse and bad, right? But it's gift and good. See, being single in the conversation of abstinence is painted as a glorious thing in these verses. I'm just curious, do you ever talk about the place that you're in if, if you aren't married, that avoiding sexual intimacy because you want to honor God is a gift that's good. This is how you talk about it. See, sex isn't everything. It can't be. It won't complete you. It won't make you whole. I mean, the very famous show, uh, The Bachelor, okay, um, has a very controversial bachelor on right now. I don't know if you knew this. Um, what's the controversy over him? You want to know? He's a virgin. He's a virgin. And this is controversial, people. Right, this, is our, this is our world. Right, he's a virgin. People are saying things like, what's wrong with him? It's like a negative thing. They're saying things like, he is, he's less than, he's not qualified to be the bachelor. I mean, how, we can't trust, you know, basically, it's like this weird thing, okay? He's less than, he's not ready. I look at Liz, and I'm like, what is life? Like, this is weird to me, you know? Like, this is the world we're living in. Okay? And maybe some of you get that. I don't know. Maybe you get that. Okay? But we elevate sex to a position in our lives where it means way too much to us. See, sex is a gift from God. It's beautiful. It's sacred. It's a gift. It's not God. It's not God. It doesn't make you more of a person or less than. It's not everything. It's not. It can't be. It can't make you whole. I mean, come on. Jesus was single. He never had sex, and he was like the most whole person I've ever heard of in my life, okay? But, but, but this, is our, this is our beliefs. We elevate sex into a godlike position. I say godlike because we think we can't live without it, okay? And whatever it is that you can't live without is no longer a gift, is it? It is now a god. It is no longer a servant. It's a master, isn't it? You have to have it. But in the face of the idea of celibacy or abstinence, we say, man, this is, that sounds impossible, Josh, okay? I'll just ask for forgiveness, you know? Um, C.S. Lewis, this will be on the screen, he said this. He said, many people are deterred from seriously attempting Christian chastity because they think before trying that it's impossible. But when a thing has to be attempted, one must never think about possibility or impossibility. In examinations, in war, in mountain climbing, in learning to skate or swim or ride a bicycle, even in fastening a stiff collar with cold fingers. People quite often do what seemed impossible before they did it. It is wonderful what you can do when you have to. So C.S. Lewis says, when you have to. I think he's right, but that's not Paul's stance, is it? Paul's isn't saying, Paul doesn't have like a have-to stance. That's the powerful Think about Paul. Paul has a, I get to do this stance. Not a, I have to. I get to. It's a gift. How? How is being single not settling? How is being single not leave you hopeless in a battle for self-control? Why? How? Because in a very real way, and someday, please hear me, the realness of this reality will be stronger than any reality that feels strong right now. 
What's the reality? That you and I will see that we are already married. If you're a follower of Jesus, you aren't single. The Bible tells you theologically you're married. You're married. You are married to Jesus. Remember last week, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 17, what does it say? In the context of union and marriage, it says what? That you are united to Jesus. You are one flesh with him. Jesus is your true and better spouse. That's what it tells you. This is the great truth, honestly, guys. Uh, If this wraps around your heart, you'll see this morning, you'll see this, that God isn't holding out on you. He's not holding out on you, but he's giving you something better. And so I just want to do this little exercise and let this sink in for a second. These will be on the screen. I'm just going to show you how this is all over the place in the Bible. This isn't one spot. It's all over the place. Just let this sink in. This is your great reality. Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Isaiah 62, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Hosea 2.19, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. 2 Corinthians 11.2, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And here's our great future, Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true Words of God. Um, a few years ago, I had a top five experience in my life. Uh, my wife uh, took me to see Coldplay, okay? And it was top five, okay? Uh, I've loved Coldplay since I was, like, high school. Uh, I liked them a lot, okay? Uh, we went, sold out Levi's football stadium, incredible experience. If you're like, I hate Coldplay and you went, you're like, you would be like, wow, that was awesome. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing, mind-blowing experience, okay? Great experience, okay? I can't emphasize it enough. Um, Kind of expensive, okay? There were four people in front of us during the concert, in and out for a lot of it, playing Pokemon Go on their phones, okay? Now, I admit, I've never played Pokemon Go. doesn't look interesting to me at all. If you play it, that's fine, okay? Um, But nonetheless, I was like, what is wrong with these people? You have this incredible thing in front of you that you could see, savor, experience, enjoy, and you're settling for Pokemon Go? You paid hundreds of dollars to play Pokemon Go. I'm like, you have filthy money or something. I don't know what's going on here. It was crazy to me. 
that you could have such an opportunity to experience something far greater and far better, and you're wrapped up in your little phone. Guys, the verses I read to you just now, like they don't even compare to a Coldplay concert or whatever your favorite musician is or something. Like it's not even, it's not even close. We're talking about galaxies apart. Like incredible stuff. And what I just read to you, I don't know how it lands, but I trust that God's word does not return void. You are married. You are not alone. You are not single. If you have Christ, you have a far better spouse than anyone could ever offer you. Right? If the identity of Jesus to you is that he is your spouse, that he is your true husband, and guys, just to be clear, we're not talking physical stuff here. I mean, this might be weird for you. I'm just being real. It might be weird for you, but it's, but it's a real theological reality. Guys, you're not settling for singleness. You're not missing out. He is enough. He's way better than the second marshmallow, right? God isn't holding out. He's giving something better. He's not second best. See, no human spouse can provide for you what Jesus provides for you. He never withholds himself. He never deprives you, right? He never withdraws. He's never selfish. He's always giving. He gives himself to you, and we know that he will never hold back because he already held nothing back. He gave you his life. He didn't withhold himself from giving his body to you when he offered it up on a cross to be broken so that you would never be lonely again. See, God is presented here in verse 7 as a giver. He gives gifts, and the greatest gift that he ever gave you is not sex, and it's not singleness, that's for sure, it's his son. That's the greatest gift that he has ever given you, and that will never be ripped away from you. I'm telling you, this isn't mental gymnastics kind of stuff. This isn't like sleight of hand, like you can make it, you know? Right? This isn't shallow thinking. People often accuse Christians of being shallow in their thinking, right? That you just hear something in the Bible, you just blindly go along with it. I'm telling you to do the opposite of that. I'm telling you to press in, to meditate on it, to think about it, to put down the phone, to be engrossed with it. And so if you find yourself in verse 9 and you're struggling to exercise self-control and it's your desire to marry, but that's not being offered to you right now, my heart breaks for you. But know that what you lack is the very thing that God the giver is offering. He's offering it to you. Because what these people lack is self-control, and that's exactly what God gives. He gives you the Holy Spirit. And remember, last week, we learned that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, and we're told in Galatians 5.22 that a fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. But God doesn't give self-control to you in a bottle that he made. He gives you self-control by giving you himself. And so when we lack it, we don't go try to find a bottle and just somehow abstractly experience self-control we actively press into Jesus. We actively go to him and we experience the intimacy with him, not the intimacy that your heart's beating for. So guys, right now, if you're, if you're on earth, which you are, congratulations. And if you're single, you are already moving towards a wedding day that no other wedding you could ever dream of will rival. And no other marriage that you dream of will satisfy you like Jesus. If you think it will, that's a lie. And there's a way that seems right to a person, but that way leads to destruction. 
You weren't made for another person. You were made for God. You don't need to find a soulmate because you already have the one who rescued your soul. And believe me, you weren't made for sex, my friends. You were made to be satisfied by God. And what your distorted cravings are really pointing towards is him. So sex is good, but don't distort it. It can destroy you. But sex also isn't everything, because Jesus is enough. So whether we're single or married, may we show the world that our cravings and longings are for our great wedding day to Christ. That's my hope. So let's all stand together as we go into a time of response, as we take communion uh, together, remembering that Christ offered his body to you, his body to you. This table is a, is a thing that we remember every week that, re, that reminds us that Jesus has not withheld himself. He's given you everything of him. Lord Jesus, I pray that today uh, would be a day of fresh grace for so many. God, we all need your grace. God, we, we do. We let our desires get the best of us all the time. And Lord, I pray that uh, today would be a day where we would, we would receive your mercy, receive your grace, and that you would instill within us just a powerful vision of the future we are headed into. And may that not just feel like we're delaying gratification, God, but would you show us how we can have this powerful satisfaction in the intimacy we have with you and with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we pray you do a powerful thing in our church and every community that follows you here in this uh, city, Lord. May we be people, um, Lord, who, who see sex as a gift and not our God. And may we show the world, Lord, that you are, you are better than anything this world offers us. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.